How is it possible that it's already August? We hope you are enjoying your summer. Back by popular demand is our AirPods Pro giveaway. Members who successfully answer our bonus content quiz will be entered for a chance to win a pair of AirPods Pro. To participate, you must have access to the bonus sections of the podcasts, which you get by becoming a member. Members also receive an ad-free listening experience, an evening newsletter, an invitation to join the DSR Slack community, and more. Best of all, if you become a member in the month of August, you'll receive 50% off the normal membership price. Visit thedsrnetwork.com slash buy and enter code BONUSCONTENT, one word, at checkout. That's thedsrnetwork.com slash buy and code bonus content. Thank you for your support. Hi, and welcome back to Foreign Office. I'm Michael Weiss, Director of Special Investigations at the Free Russia Foundation, as well as the English language editor of The Insider. Uh, Today, I'm joined by Martin Krag. He is a Swedish analyst of Eastern Europe and Russia. Uh, with a focus most recently on sanctions and Russian military spending. Uh, He and I have known each other for several years. Um, I think we presented a paper together in Stockholm, what, almost seven or eight years ago, Martin, right? On on Kremlin malign influence all over the world, not least of which. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that was a, yeah. And you you had a great paper that you wrote together with uh, Pomerantsev, I think. Yes. even longer, uh, yeah. Published but... in uh, 2014 or 15, and uh, mm-hmm. I think at least since then we have our circles have sort of uh, interact inter- intersected with each other. Yeah, it's a large community, but it it can feel quite small, especially at moments it, of crisis. Yeah, so. yeah, yeah. Well, I I wanted to to talk to you. I was just in Stockholm um, with my wife actually for midsummer mm. in June. Um, and this was uh, just before the uh, rather unexpected, or I should say seemingly unexpected, because a, a lot of analysts had been predicting that Turkey would get to yes eventually. But the the Western media portrayal was that Erdogan was digging in his heels and very uh, obstructionist on Swedish accession. Uh, Finland obviously was done and dusted um, over... Well, I mean, I, I will turn it to you in a second, but on the surface, it was over... Sweden's um, uh, generous asylum program for uh, Kurds, uh, which Turkey will characterize as Kurds affiliated with the Kurdish or Kurdistan Workers Party, the PKK, which hold rallies in Stockholm and elsewhere in Sweden all the time. Turkey considers it a terrorist organization. So does the European Union. So does the United States. But it always seemed like this was more of a transactional arrangement for Erdogan, or rather he was going to use the PKK issue as leverage to extract concessions, not necessarily from Sweden, but from the United States, particularly in the form of Mm. F-16s, spare parts, uh, lifting of certain blocks on weapons programs. What what is your make of of how uh, Turkey went from saying no, no, no to saying, okay, Sweden can join? Well, I think it was... Partially, of course, the the transactional dimension, he wanted to use that as some sort of a leverage in the negotiations. Um, But I also think that at some level it was personal for him. Mm -hmm. And so it was important 
it was clear that from the very beginning uh, of this process, which started last sp uh, spring last year, that uh, the Swedish government would have to manage this relationship with him and the Turkish government. Uh, also, uh, uh, you know, on this very sort of uh, this very uh, careful level, taking yeah. you know into consideration the sensitive sensitivities of, of, of the Turkish government, and, and and sort of not necessarily, you know, saying that uh, tomorrow we will implement uh, legislation similar to what you have in Turkey, but uh, showing um, sort of understanding for the for the Turkish position, and then you had uh, this issue about the legislation against. Uh, participation in terrorist organizations. Uh, that legislation in, in Sweden was already uh, in motion before mm -hmm. the NATO issue came up. So, uh, but, but that was also included in the whole bilateral process with Turkey that Sweden, the Swedish government was saying that, well, look, we are sharp and tightening uh, our legislation in areas that are important for Turkey as well, such as terrorism. Although, of course, the definition of terrorism could be very different in a Swedish court compared to a Turkish one. Right. So it was never going to be the case that Sweden would revise its constitution to satisfy Turkish demands for joining NATO. Um, this was always no, a, a dance. Yeah. Yeah. Although this legislation on participation in terrorist organization actually uh, meant that the um, that's why it took so long because the constitution actually had to be altered. Yeah. But let's talk a little bit about these um, demonstrations that have been taking place now. I've lost count. Quran mm -hmm. uh, yeah, burnings, too. you know, sort of anti-Islam yeah. provocations. Uh, there's been some reporting in the Swedish press that these uh, are somehow tied to Russian state or para-state interests. I had seen one. Uh, who is this guy? I think he's half... Uh, Swedish half Finnish, uh, sort of a very right wing populist um, actor mm. in Swedish politics. And there had been some insinuation mm -hmm. that he had been connected to Wagner. Uh, but I've also heard Swedish government officials say, actually, we, we think those links are perhaps overblown. And, and, and for instance, yeah. this guy has been... He's been up to no good for years. And what is what you know? I, from our vantage point here in the United States, I mean, you would expect the Russian government and its intelligence organs to try to stop Sweden and also Finland from joining NATO, particularly Finland, because that extended the border with NATO and Russia yeah. by some you know hundreds of of kilometers. But in the case of Sweden, you know. You've had these demonstrations before. You've had anti-migrant, anti-Muslim, um, you know, protests. And and again, coming back to the Constitution, it is the right of any individual to express him or herself, including by burning holy books, um, as long as they're not engaged in any kind of you know public safety issue. What is your read on this? Was were these provocations? Maybe I shouldn't even call them provocations. Were these protests timed? to to halt or to impede NATO accession or is it just it's Tuesday so let's go yeah. you know, burn a Quran and, and demonstrate um, there have been now several incidents um, where the Quran uh, was you know uh, uh, sort of uh, burnt or you know they they or they were kicking it around or they some other you know 
protest was organized where they burned a doll of Erdogan, for example, earlier. I don't think, I mean, these and some of these protests have been, you know, standalone. They, they, they're not necessarily connected to each other and they have taken, they have occurred also over quite a long time period now, almost a year. Yeah. Uh, and so um, some of them have just been, you know, one or two of them may have been just protests against Erdogan and people thinking that, you know, he's up to no good, he's a dictator mm -hmm. or sultan or whatever they call him. Uh, and, and, and sometimes those could be, you know, pro-Kurdish groups, for example, yeah. here in Sweden, who were organizing them. Uh, you could also have, the you, we, but, but the most recent ones have been actually, uh, you know, uh, conducted by a guy. His name is Monika or something like this, his surname. Uh, and he's from Iraq. And he claims asylum, um, mm -hmm. and, uh, and he, he, his official stance is that uh, I will burn the Quran until the book is banned in Sweden, which is absolutely nonsense argument. And uh, he's a and he's a, a Syriac uh, Christian from Iraq, right? Just so we're something something like that, if you, yeah. if that information can be trusted, yeah. um, because there's evidence that he. Uh, uh, you know, has been close to the uh, regime as well, not so long mm -hmm. ago. Yeah. So, um, so actually, rather than thinking about a, a Russia connection, uh, I think there, are, you could have grounds for speculating at least that there could be a, an Iran connection, mm -hmm. because Iran has been the most outspoken critic in the Middle East against Sweden. Rather than yeah. Turkey, it's been Iran that was driving these protests. The um, you know these attacks against uh, the Swedish embassy in Baghdad, for example. Yes, um, it, they they were sort of uh, urged by you know uh, not uh, 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 by um, by Iran affiliated you know religious uh, actors and uh, the highest religious authorities in Iran, but also Hezbollah and in Lebanon have been the most outspoken critics um, against Sweden. So it seems. That for some reason, you know, they have decided to 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 politicize this issue and make it an issue and mobilize yeah. around it politically. So, uh, uh, why, whereas Erdogan, uh, to my knowledge, actually has been rather quiet. Uh, uh, and what Russia has done, you know, um, you know, uh, probably by now as well, that when you see a Russian influence operation, it typically smells and looks like one because there's a certain pattern. To, to stuff when they do it. And yeah. there are certain pieces missing here that make me, uh, although I may not have all the information, but, but there, are certain pieces, there are certain pieces missing in this case which make me believe that the, Rus the role of Russia is uh, not very uh, uh, large in this case. It yeah. could be indirect, and, and I think it's indirect in two ways, perhaps. Um, one is that both uh, uh, Putin as well as uh, Maria Zakharova who is the foreign ministry spokeswoman? They have made they have made in the last few weeks quite critical comments against Sweden, saying that Sweden doesn't respect traditional values. You know, they allow these uh, hooligans and Nazis and Satanists to desecrate holy books and so on. And of course, they speak not at all about you know the persecution of religious groups in Russia. But but they they claim here to be the the defenders of traditional values, including you know values of Islam, right. and so they're sort of they're sort of you know reaching out here in a way to the domestic you know target groups, but also perhaps groups in in Iran or elsewhere in the Middle East. Um, 
The other thing which is difficult for us to follow, but but I think here the Swedish embassies in, in the relevant countries would know more, uh, you know, is about um, what Russian state media uh, broadcasting in these in the Middle East has been up to. Mm. Uh, and if they have decided to mobilize in their broadcasting around this issue or not. Uh, yeah. My sense is that uh, they have done that at least to a certain extent, because th- I think that's uh, where um, the Swedish government, that, 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 that's what may, may have convinced the Swedish government that, that um, Russia is playing a, a, a role in this. Um, but, uh, but when we speak about a Russian broader influence campaign, like the one against the US election in 2016, or against the Swedish um, uh, NATO host agreement in 2016, where you had, you know, all the, the 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 full the full spectrum, you know, from fake letters to you know disinformation campaign to to you know hack and leak campaigns and so mm. on and so forth. We haven't seen that here. Yeah. Uh, and one reason could simply be that they are so preoccupied with Ukraine that they don't have a lot of resources to to you know target a small uh, peanut country like Sweden. Well, but as you were speaking, I mean, I, I was thinking, given the strategic relationship that now obtains between Russia and Iran, um, outsourcing yeah. it to the Islamic Republic would, wouldn't be all that hard. You know, I, m- I remember asking uh, some government officials when the story broke about the two um, uh, Persian members of the Swedish intelligence community who turned out they were brothers who turned out to be spies for the GRU if there was any kind of Iranian connection and it was all seemed very ambiguous and murky there um yeah I mean were they spying for Russia but also helping Russia collect for Iran for some kind of quid pro quo arrangement or whatever uh so yeah Yeah. it seems a bit it's a but here when the yeah and when the interests overlap it's easy because they then you, it just happens automatically, right? Because it's easy for Russia to just give the, you know, how it works. Their state media they receive every week these, you know, these updates of the talking points that they're going to pursue, and and they just go along. And if you know, in this in this case, it happens to be perfectly aligned with, you know, what would be the interest of Iran or some other country for the moment, right? So. So yeah, I, I don't think there's a big mystery here. Um, it doesn't have to be a bigger mystery than that. Uh, of course, it could be, but um, okay. it's difficult for us to know. So let, let's um, shift track a little bit and talk about um, Sweden's support for Ukraine, particularly the the training mm-hmm. of this brigade, which had been shrouded in secrecy and then became kind of a big deal. Certainly, the Ukrainians were very excited by this. Uh, and the provision of heavy armor, uh, archers, uh, what is it, the CV-90? It's now coming yeah. into, into infantry vehicles. Infantry with a, vehicles. Yeah. And then even uh, at the level of, of air power, uh, there's been all this scuttlebutt about, well, would the Gripen be a better airframe for the Ukrainians to fly than, say, the F-16 or some of the other yeah. models that have been yeah. discussed? Um, yeah. Sweden uh, seems very, very keen on a Ukrainian victory and also very outspoken in um, enforcing the sanctions regime. I mean, I know you're a sanctions specialist, but mm-hmm. you know, boycotting companies, Western companies that continue to do business in Russia. I mean, for instance, uh, I was at a, a midsummer um, dinner uh, and, you know, those things go on for quite a while. And I was, um, we were, we were eating some fish with cream cheese and it was it was made very explicit at the dinner that they were not using philadelphia cream cheese which is quite famous here in the united states and i said why and they said because philadelphia cream cheese is also doing business 
in Russia. So they're more aware on American companies that are violating not just, I guess, sanctions, but sort of the moral economic blockade that has been imposed on Russia. Um, yeah. Obviously, there's a great deal of history between Sweden and Russia. Peter the Great created the Russian Navy, essentially as a form of deterrence against you guys and, and your naval power at the time. Yeah. Um, but what, you know, this this seems to kind of cut across um, uh, the ideological spectrum a bit. I mean, I know that there are elements of the Social Democratic Party that are still kind of, uh, shall we mm -hmm. say, a bit soft on Russia and perhaps... No, well, not necessarily but, soft, but yeah, there's... Yeah. Um, I'll just interrupt you. Um, yes, please. Sorry, no. but... Uh, but um, I think Swedish, the Swedish case, I mean, it's true that Sweden is one of the more uh, forward-leading leaning countries uh, mm -hmm. when it comes to Russia and Ukraine and support for Ukraine militarily. Uh, I, I think in particular uh, in, in relation to the size of the Swedish military and the Swedish economy. Mm -hmm. um, I think we're sort of doing quite well in comparison with other countries if you think military support is, is important. Yeah. And, um, <clears throat> Uh, but Sweden, as all countries in Europe and maybe even the U.S., I mean, we have all been involved in, you know, what in what you know in this process of change, which in Germany has been given the name Zeitenwende. Mm -hmm. And of course, it's not as transformational in Sweden this experience as it has been in Germany, where it's very painful. But uh, but step by step, uh, um, Swedish support, military support, and economic support has also been ramped up. Uh, yeah, uh, uh, and and so he, also here it was a process. The support wasn't immediately forthcoming, and I'm not sure it's about uh, whether it's about uh, the the shifting government we had last year. I think it's also has to do with this mental process uh, of you know how the war has changed, uh, you know, uh, risk perceptions and and mentalities everywhere, mm -hmm. and where you know step by step you know where we are uh, you know seeing how. Uh, more and more people are convinced that you know a, a Ukrainian military victory in this war is very important, and so it also takes time, of course, um, to to provide support of heavy heavy weapons. Uh, uh, the um, the training that was conducted in, in on Swedish territory uh, uh, on these infantry vehicles. As you said, uh, they were shrouded in secrecy. I, I don't think I, I, I would assume that very few people, except for those who were immediately involved, were aware of it until mm -hmm. you know it was a fait accompli and they were like saying goodbye and coming going back to Ukraine. I think that was very much connected to fears that uh, you know uh, for uh, you know of you know Russian sabotage actions like the ones we have seen the GRU conduct in right. Europe in the last you know five eight years. And so there's an awareness that you have to have informational, you know, uh, security regarding these issues. They're they're extremely sensible, and we also have a defense industry in Sweden that is now vulnerable to to Russian sabotage because they are directly supporting the Ukrainian war effort. Um, right. I, I think Sweden has now provided almost everything they could possibly provide, except for the fighter jets, the the Yaskripen, as you mentioned. Mm -hmm. Those fighter jets were, you know, um, back in the days, uh, for obvious reasons, they were developed with uh, a Russian or before that a Soviet threat in mind. And that's why a lot of people are saying also that they could be helpful for Ukraine, especially because they're quite small and agile. So they were built on the assumption that in the first days or weeks of a war, Russia would destroy all the major airfields. And so you would need you would need fighter jets that can basically start and land everywhere. Right. And this is 
this is why they're helpful also for the Ukrainians. They would be able to move them around very easily mm -hmm. uh, and to keep them safe from attacks. So, yeah, yeah uh, but, but I don't think, to my knowledge, the, the fighter jets issue is not on the agenda at the moment. Um, but, uh, but yeah, the... Uh, well, it seems like the F-16 the... program is going forward. It's just, it's there are a lot of delays, and whether it's because of all the box it's ticking a, and infrastructure process, building. Yeah, yeah. 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 Um, let me ask you this, as somebody who studies Russian history, uh, this Prigozhin, people keep calling it a mutiny, but I'm a little bit reluctant to commit to what exactly it was just yet, uh, because there's more information coming to light about just how pervasive his support was and whether there were fifth columnists at high levels of the Russian military uh, industrial complex and defense or, or security establishment that might have been complicit in this. But um, this was sort of shocking to many people in the West that, you know, this this warlord oligarch who commanded a what seemed to be a private army, but now we know was funded with public money, uh, managed to get within 120 miles of Moscow, relatively uncontested. I mean, there was ground combat and obviously shooting of helicopters and all that. But really, um, if he had hung around in Rostov-on-Don and decided to just make the Southern Military District Headquarters his new command center, it's hard to imagine how he would have been dislodged from there. What is your read on this situation? I mean, uh, you know, I, I, I talk to two <laughs> Russia experts and I get three different yeah. answers of what's taking place, you know. Um, yeah. That's why I'm, I'm, I'm also not going to speculate too much mm -hmm. uh, because, as you said, first, first because there's information coming out not every day anymore but but we can expect more knowledge to be you know available over yeah. time also it's a black box of course especially what happened after the mutiny let's right. call it a mutiny i mean with the meeting in the kremlin with prigozhin and his guys and putin and then putin appearing here uh, last uh, one or two weeks ago at the russia africa summit in st petersburg i mean he was supposed to disappear putin had called him a traitor so something has happened, and and it's extremely uh, you you cannot, It's difficult to apply the sort of uh, let's call it the common logic, uh, you know, to this case because it doesn't make any sense from the outside. Right. So there's there must be a a piece of this puzzle that is still missing, or you know, it's very simple. It could also be the case that you know, hey, this is a guy who has known Putin for more than three decades. Uh, he's a crook. Putin is a crook. You know, they made some, you know, panyati, some mm -hmm. some un common understanding, and and you know, Putin doesn't care too much in the end about you know this this attempt to to cause political havoc in, in Moscow. But uh, but I think um, this is the I mean this is typical way uh, authoritarian systems uh, change. Uh, I mean you don't because you don't have any institutionalized. Or democratic processes for regime change, where you know political power is handed over to a successor, or 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 in some you know organized way, like in old Tsar Russia, everybody knew that the oldest son will one day, you know, uh, take over the throne from the father, and uh, that's a one way of having you know a political yeah. system organized. Or you know you have a democracy where you have elections and, and people you know recognize the results. That's another way. But in these type of very personalized authoritarian systems, like like the one we have with Russia under Putin, and there are similar ones. If you look all the way around, I mean, the belt of countries, most of them around Russia, from you know Kazakhstan to to uh, Moldova, 
uh, you've actually had in the last 10 or 15 years similar types of regime changes where you basically have a coup d'etat or, or some other dramatic event and the new guy comes to power. So presumably, if, you would, if we would see a, a change of power while Putin is still alive, this could very well be one of the ways we would see it. It's just that for yep. some reason, this, whatever this was, it was interrupted before it sort of reached its climb, potential climax. Yeah. Um, maybe, it, I mean, there, yeah. My colleague, so, Joseph, believes that, you know, this, this culminates in one of two ways. Um, Prigozhin is dead or there's another coup. And this one may yeah. be more successful. Um, because, again, in, in the annals of Russian history, I mean, there have been violent usurpations of power. Um, as yeah. you said, that's basically the standard form for Russian regime change. And yet I've never, I, I mean, maybe my, my historical knowledge is lacking here. I've never seen a putschist welcome back to the Kremlin to break, you know, to, to, to yeah, do some kind is, of arrangement yeah, with yeah, Tsar. I mean, it still, doesn't, yeah. this is very unusual. This is very yeah. uh, unprecedented. Um, the unusual thing is not the attempt to, to you know, uh, ri rise up against power, if right. it's a palace coup or something else. Uh, the, the unusual thing is what happened after the event. The forgiveness. Uh, where everybody yeah. Was, yeah, where everybody was expecting Putin to uh, basically uh, throw uh, Prigozhin to the lions. Right. But it didn't. Yeah, so it's a it's a bit of a mystery. Um, uh, but um, but I, mean, I guess reason, you know the, the interesting thing, historians will have access to the archives, maybe. <laughs> yeah, and I mean the, the, the interesting thing that I've noticed um, is from the U.S. government, which until very recently would uh, routinely remind everyone that uh, Russia is a nuclear power. It threatens to use nuclear weapons. There's all kinds of ways it could escalate if we do something untoward. All of a sudden, and uh, some of this pre preceded the Prigozhin coup. Um, yeah. Victoria Nuland, for instance, had said, our intelligence suggests Putin has, has, has been talked out of doing something catastrophic, not just by us, but yeah. by the Chinese and by the Indians. Um, but recently, since Prigozhin's coup, there has been a marked shift in at least the strategic communications, for lack of a better term, coming out of Washington. Um, in other words, they're no longer afraid Putin is going to unleash World War III over Ukraine. Uh, they, they begin to see that he is actually a lot weaker and more vulnerable than at first he appeared. Uh, and, mm. and leaving aside what Prigozhin has done, look at sort of what the Ukrainians with these sort of plausibly deniable proxies have accomplished in Belgorod. I mean, not just raids, I mean, sort of quasi-occupations lasting several days, um, taking over little hamlets and, and towns. Um, the constant barrage now of drone attacks inside Russia, and also now the use of naval drones to hit the Kerch Bridge. There's just video published today by CNN showing how this was done in just uh, last week, I believe. Um, what is your read generally on the state of Putin's regime and his his uh, hold on power? Yeah, it's uh, it's an interesting question. I actually, well, and, and uh, speaking about the coup attempt, uh, I just would like to mention a report my that that we published uh, earlier this spring. It was before this Prigozhin affair by my colleague um, Alexander Goltz, who is a well-known Russian military analyst who is yes. with us. He actually predicted that uh, uh, the way things are going and the way Russia and the Russian military 
is you know supporting more or less you know clandestinely these uh, private military groups that you know they are basically creating this scenario of a of a riot a mil- of a mutiny or something like this mm. precisely the way it happened eventually uh, yeah. with Prigozhin. so so if you're interested you know google uh, swedish in, uh, stockholm center for eastern european studies and and, and you know alexander goltz and you can find his report i think it's an interesting uh, uh, one uh, and he discusses you know these various scenarios that that we can think about mm. um but um the the broader nature of, of you know russia's political system uh, unfortunately for us um is precisely uh, what um makes it so unpredictable because right. it looks stable until the minute it's not and so you know typically if you look at similar systems that have existed historically or today um power will you know shift hands because either you know the guy in the top he dies for one reason or the other or there's a palace coup or mm-hmm. there's an uprising from below like an orange revolution or something like that which looks unlikely today in Russia because of the severe repression against civil society right. but um but but of course uh, these uh, are the typical three sort of scenarios you can imagine um and whether or not uh, putin has been weakened you know as long as you know he's sitting there in the kremlin and the, he's appearing on television in russia and they call him the president <laughs> and he's not in handcuffs you know we have to presume that he is still in power right. uh, you know uh, using you know all the sort of leverage he has in that position so yeah i i, I don't i'm not one of the people who 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 dare to speculate too much about you know these things because in the last 15 20 years we have been reading you know um uh, analysis um, and reports claiming that you know maybe this will happen perhaps this could happen uh, but um but yeah i'm uh, i'm a bit wary of of, of predicting those so, sort of events but of course the prigozhin mutiny and the way the that uh, russia's war against ukraine is unfolding i mean both of those these things are, are you know horrible for any dictator uh, so definitely the 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 way things are going it's not positive for putin but uh, look i mean saddam hussein was able to you know survive his uh, kuwait debacle mm-hmm. for uh, more than a decade before you know the american army you know uh, stormed in again and right. then you know removed him physically from power and so you know uh, dictators can stick it out even losing right. a war if they have the, the domestic uh, repression available sure but I mean, yeah. you know, looking at at you know, Russia is is not Iraq, and also Russia is actively engaged in the war. So if it were to stay engaged in a war against a next door neighbor for the space of ten years, this is my next question. You're an economist. Uh, we have seen in recent days the ruble has crashed. Uh, we have seen, um, you know, th- there 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 does seem to be. Uh, a, an effect taking place due to international sanctions. Clearly, there are markets still open to Russia, yeah. China, um, you know, uh, India, yeah. etc. However, um, the idea or the the kind of I, I think it's more of like a, a platitude that has been suggested by stakeholders in the West that the longer the war goes on, the worse it will be for Ukraine. I am now beginning to hear people very seriously suggest that actually the opposite is true. The longer the war goes on, the worse it will be for Russia. Um, 
as somebody who studies the the economics of the Russian military, can you yeah. give me a sense and and my listeners a sense of how much money do you think Putin has got in the kitty to sustain this war machine? Um, how much money is there to purchase Shahid drones from Iran? Um, mm-hmm. Is there a possibility that the Russians might at some point procure Iranian cruise missiles? Um, what kind of kit, you know, can they simply just manufacture infinite amounts of? Or is there indeed a, a finite level of resources for them in terms of artillery shells, tanks, armor, and then not least of all, the, the human element, right? I mean, is there going to be, uh, or, or do you anticipate another mass mobilization of sending new fresh meat to the front? Where, where do things stand in terms of the, the dollar and se- dollars and cents analysis of this war for Russia? Yeah. Um, so uh, together with a colleague, Eric Andemou, we published in the journal Post-Soviet Affairs. It was before, actually, uh, February last year. But we published an analysis of the way we think the sanctions have impacted the Russian economy since 2014 to, to uh, 2020. And... Um, the, the interesting thing about no, to know about uh, the sanctions, uh, uh, the sectoral sanctions against Russia's financial system, because they, they were the most important ones from 2014, and now we have the sanctions and the boycotts of Russian oil and gas, which are also important, like sectoral sanctions. We didn't have that before. And the important thing to know about those is that they are designed to have an impact in the long term. Mm-hmm. So when you measure, for example, the uh, impact of sanctions on Russian GDP, they will sort of miss the mark because most of those models are designed to look for short-term effects. Mm. Like uh, if you take a hammer uh, and you know strike it against like uh, um, like uh, against some metal object, it will resonate very hard for the first seconds, and then it will sort of calm down and stabilize. Mm-hmm. But the sanctions are designed to be to to be uh, um, uh, to operate in a, uh, uh, the other way around. Mm-hmm. The, the, the the effect is accumulated over time, and yeah. the costs incurred by the sanctions will accumulate over time. And you can see that in the uh, in the uh, structure of the Russian state budget, how certain expenditure posts have developed. For example, interest rates have gone up. That impacts the the costs of managing the the state uh, government debt, and so although the actual debt is quite low uh, in Russia, uh, and people usually think say that that's a good thing, the interest rate on that debt has gone up quite mm-hmm. a lot. Yeah. So so the cost of managing it, uh, it will just go up and up. So they will have to put more money into funding uh, the government debt, uh, and as well, you know, you have the 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 military and defense expenditures that are crowding out now step by step everything else from you know investments in healthcare and 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 housing to to you know whatever social programs uh, and that also will just you know accumulate over time uh, and now we have seen a sharp increase because primarily i would guess it has to do with salaries to soldiers and veterans. Uh, and those will also be sort of relatively permanent because you have the pensions there as well. Yeah. So those costs will be long-term as well. And the Russian economy is stagnating, the revenues from oil and gas is declining. And you know, if you look very much into the future, let's say 10, 15 years, what's the big structural change? The big structural change is a world moving away from reliance on fossil fuels. 
mm. we have the electrifications of cars and vehicles and what what have you not and that will also have a long-term impact on the uh, demand structure for Russia's most important export commodity and source of revenue, right. uh, the fossil, the fossil, fossil uh, sector. And so uh, Putin has in no way, I mean, he's been in power for more than two decades. He could have prepared his country for this structural, inevitable structural shift. He hasn't. Instead, he started this imperialist war. And as a result, you know, Russia will end up with an economy that is absolutely not at all adapted to, to current uh, uh, you know, um, world where the, the situation the, the the rest of the world is going through, uh, and uh, you know, and with the sanctions on top of that, uh, in from my perspective, it looks relatively bleak, uh, and I think that's the perspective of most, you know, uh, Russians who are thinking seriously about this issue as well. He has created a clear sort of, um, you know, problem for for anyone who who will you know also succeed him at some point. But does he care? I mean, another you know. No, question uh, yes. is, yeah. Right. This, yeah, this, this, this is, uh, I think, an, an an interesting sort of a challenge for a lot of Russia analysis, uh, especially the 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 one that was pervasive at least maybe until 2014, but also after that, uh, people were saying that look, Putin may be a bad guy uh, and a dictator, but he's not willing to to you know bet the future of the Russia on some imperialist adventure but, but that's precisely what he was willing to do and so maybe he thought that you know that uh, you know the invasion of ukraine would simply be a one-week affair and the, the rest of the world wouldn't care too much but that's a very i mean we don't know that yeah what he was willing to to bet and you know if you think about historical analogies you know in 1914 the germans knew there was a huge risk that they would be fighting a two-front war with France, supported by with by Britain uh, and Russia. Mm -hmm. um, uh, but you know, they decided to go to war anyhow. Right. So, so we can we can easily imagine. You know, I mean, Putin is not dumber or smarter than you know the Germans were. You know, 120 years ago, probably he knew that there's a huge sanctions risk and a huge reputational risk for for him to do this. He decided to go ahead anyhow. Well, I remember reading at the start of the war, the, I think it was a New York Times article quoting Fiona Hill, who, uh, you know, tends to be fairly uh, acute in her analysis of, of yeah, Putin and absolutely. the way he thinks. And One of the best. She said, you know, this is somebody who, who fundamentally believes, and he has plenty of anecdotal evidence to back him up in this regard, that anybody in the West, regardless of their public rhetoric about, you know, the rules-based order, the rollback of democracy, crackdown on human rights, that they're all viable, that the West yeah. is just as corrupt as Russia, if not more so, because hypocritical on top of the corruption. And therefore, yeah. you know, through fire and steel, there'll be a lot of shouting and grumbling, but at the end of the day, he can just get away with it. Um, I mean, just, just this week, we had a, a senior FBI agent plead guilty to essentially being as corrupt as Putin assumes everyone in the West is by taking money from Deripaska, the man he was meant to investigate while he was at the FBI. Um, and yet, strangely, this Western coalition has held together. There are cracks, there are areas of weakness, to be sure, but it is largely held together. 
And if anything, I mean, now we have the Germans talking about sending cruise missiles to Ukraine, um, something completely yeah. unfathomable, even after the the, the Schultz Zeitenwende speech in the Bundestag. Um, you know, where <laughs> this is, seems to be a miscalculation on his part, not just in terms of the resistance Ukraine was going to put up to the Russian army, but also the, the resistance that liberal democracy in the West would put up to as you say, another, an imperialist war waged in the heart of Europe in the 21st century. Yeah, he, um, he maybe it was mirroring. He was, you know, looking at the West, seeing, you know, what he wanted to see. Yeah. Um, but at some point, you know, yeah, I mean, it's clear they underestimated the resolve of the, uh, let's call it a Western alliance to, to be able to be sustainable as it had the way it has been. He also, but, but of course, the fundamental miscalculation was the one he did vis-a-vis uh, -vis Ukraine. Yeah. Because no matter what, you know, the EU or NATO does now or you know whatever they would have done one and a half years ago, you know, Ukrainians would have res continued to resist uh, the Russian invasion with anything they had. Right. You know, if it's just spatulas and, and kitchen knives, you know, I'm looking at your, you know, behind you thinking about what you can find in a kitchen. <laughs> you right. know, uh, yeah, <laughs> just for those who are just listening to this, which you have to because it's a podcast. Yeah. I am recording this at my dining room table because I'm in the process of moving from a house to an apartment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Martin yeah. has a view of my KitchenAid appliances and empty yeah. jars behind me. But yes, anyway, go but, ahead. And, that, and, and that's speaking what, of which, <laughs> not just spatulas, but but bottles of what was it? Tomatoes. Remember the babushka who threw yeah. a jar of something exactly. at a drone and downed it? Yeah, and, exactly. Uh, but but exactly. And the first few days of the invasion. What were we seeing from Ukraine? People preparing Molotov cocktails. Exactly, yeah. Uh, but I don't think they have had any use for them. Uh, not very much, at least, because, you know, they were the Ukrainian military were able, was able to repel, you know, this uh, assault against uh, the, the capital. Yeah. But, uh, but I mean, but, but that type of resistance, it's un I think that's the biggest conundrum so far, how they could so severely underestimate uh, the Ukrainian resolve. I think that's that's one of the biggest questions. Uh, but um, you know, well, historians me, will try to sort it out. Yeah. Well, let's let's turn then to um, the present day lay of the land or the the, mm. the battlefield. I mean, I know you're not a military analyst per se, but you know enough about Russian history and the as we were discussing the economics of the Russian military in the West right now. Um, there seems to be a lot of uh, doom casting about the state of this counteroffensive, which began June first or June fourth, rather. So it's two and a half months and change into it. Uh, so far, the Ukrainians have struggled to take sizable pieces of territory. Um, there is credible reporting that they've liberated or they're about to liberate uh, Robotnia. Um, they are chipping away, uh, taking increasing number of small villages and settlements. Um, but it's 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 a it's tough going. We've got minefields. We've got dug in Russian positions. Um, the use of alligator helicopter gunships by the Russians have wreaked havoc on the ability for Ukraine to to conduct combined combined arms maneuver a la NATO, which of course they can't do really, and were never able to do because they don't have air superiority, which is kind of the sine qua non of combined arms maneuver a la NATO. Um, and yet, and yet, there is an growing course of opinion that says, look, the Ukrainians know how to fight the Russians because they've been doing it for more than a decade. Um, 
they have resorted to what they know best, which is probably unfair to describe it simply as attritional warfare, you know, artillery barrage after artillery barrage Mm -hmm. to corrode Russian logistics, ammunition depots, you know, command centers, and really kind of soften up the tissue before you plunge the knife in, as it were. However, they're going back to first principles of, of their form of warfare. And they've met with some minimal to moderate success, particularly in the last week or so. Also, to listen to what the Russians are saying on their social media channels, and I can only imagine what Western intelligence is picking up from that side, uh, things are not going well for the Russians. There's panic. There's there's doom and gloom about Russian capability. Uh, we saw the, uh, the, the major uh, Popov who leaked this communique intended for his own troops, but it was published after he was sacked, saying that we've lost all ability to do counter-battery, our, our men have not been rotated out, there's a lack of morale, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. One of the things that we've seen, particularly in the, the Battle of Kherson, is sometimes when it looks like things are not very dynamic on the map, that can belie the reality, which is, I mean, I, I kind of liken it to a sinkhole. You know, the, the preliminaries for a sinkhole, you don't really see because it's usually water or the decay of all of the infrastructure beneath the surface. But when the sinkhole opens up, you sure as hell see it, right? Um, and do you think that there is a possibility or, or I don't know, in, in terms of what you're reading and what you're studying, that on the Russian side, their degradation is proceeding apace and that at some point this will be unsustainable for them and that the Ukrainians may well have a breakthrough. And everyone will act surprised as to say, how and when, when did this happen? Because we were told they simply couldn't advance. I mean, what is your general read of the state of this counteroffensive? Uh, I, I share your major arguments. Um, it's obvious that the front line hasn't moved uh, very much in any direction in the last few months. On the other hand, the Ukrainian military is incurring, you know, probably incurring heavy costs on the Russian military in terms of manpower, infrastructure, you know, logistics, whatever. They are destroying it step by step, and and the Russians have to replenish that. Yeah, uh, and I think the I think probably we were discussing this previously also, you know, in terms of defense industry capacity in Russia and the costs of you know rebuilding you know all the tanks and artillery pieces that are destroyed or or used. Um, I think the probably the most difficult challenge the, the for Russia is the replenishment uh, of the troops that are lost and have to be or have to be replaced and you know, they have to circulate. Uh, and we don't know really much about that the status of the armed forces uh, that yeah. are you know at the front lines. Um, what the Russians have shifted to do is you know protect whatever they are occupying. Uh, and, and you know, with these minefields they have created and all, all the fortifications, that also suggests. I mean, that also means that you know the Russians will have. You know, they're not going to move through their own minefields either. Right. So probably they're not planning. It looks at least like they're not currently planning to use the the forces they have on the occupied territories for any large scale, you know, offensive maneuvers, the Russian right. behavior looks to me, at least as an amateur, it looks very defensive. Mm-hmm. Um, what they are doing is, you know, trying to undermine uh, Ukrainian economic, uh, 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 you know, lifelines such as the uh, uh, harbor of Odessa, 
right. or you know blocking the navigation in the Black Sea for exports of grains and, and other agricultural products that are important for Ukraine. So they are basically shifting the warfare to another domain also uh, at an increasing level because at the further during what we saw during you know the first six months of the war, if we think you know if we consider last uh, February last year as you know a new phase of a new war. Um, uh, what we're, you know, they weren't deliberately destroying that much economic infrastructure uh, in the beginning, because they were planning to occupy and overtake, uh, you know, these places. So uh, this strategy has only shifted now when they're not anticipating to 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 have to make any use of it themselves. So they rather destroy Ukraine if and they if they can't they take can't it have themselves. it. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and so and, uh, and also and exhausting there, Western stocks of air defense uh, missiles, yeah, things like that. Yeah, yeah. And, and creating yeah. and creating problems for Ukraine and the EU in places such as Africa or, or Latin America, where food prices, you know, are very, where people are very sensible, vulnerable to increases in food prices. Right. Yeah. So I mean, you know, look, I, I don't make predictions anymore, um, and it's hard enough to get a handle on on the reality. But the one thing I will notice, which is somewhat different from, for instance, the controversy surrounding the the campaign to hold Bakhmut, uh, there was a lot of um, dire opinion sentiment uh, on the Ukrainian street about Bakhmut because the the Ukrainians were suffering really catastrophic losses there, and we've seen, I, I mean some figures but a lot of it's speculative about the 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 losses they've sustained in the counteroffensive thus far most of this information is about the first week or two um most famously that fiasco with the uh, 47th where they either had damaged or destroyed several western provided uh, infantry fighting vehicles and so on um and yet ukrainian sentiment now is not all that pessimistic um, people do not seem to think that this is going so badly in Ukraine, uh, at least as compared with how it is perceived in the West. And even in the West, there's you know differing opinions about this. And I don't know. I mean, one of the things I've noticed about this war is the Ukrainians always seem to have a better handle on the situation than we do, even though we would like to very often tell them how they ought to be fighting and what they should do and why, why they're doing this yeah. wrong and, and all of that. And, you know, for them, it's sort of keep calm, carry on at the moment. There's, there, you know, there's fear about, for instance, the proliferation of drone warfare and how that's going to exhaust Ukrainian supplies. And, you know, as you said, the, the attacks on critical infrastructure, they weathered the storm in the winter. You know, Russian propaganda was saying all of Europe was going to freeze to death. That didn't happen. Uh, most of the electrical grids and the gas pipelines have come back online again. But again, we're staring down the barrel of another winter and we don't know what that's going to look like. I don't have any doubt this war is going to continue for the foreseeable future. But do you see space or do you see uh, the scenario in which Ukraine, for instance, can sever this direct line of communication along the southeast, uh, isolate Crimea, isolate everything to the west of where they might reach the Sea of Azov? And then, you know, what then? I mean, do the Russians withdraw? Do they redouble their efforts? Do they conduct a mass mobilization and try to pour more raw meat into the grinder? I mean, we just finished discussing the impact this war is having internally in Russia. Um, where, in your imagination, I'm not saying you have to say, you know, in five and a half years, this will happen. You're not Nostradamus. And I'm yeah, not yeah, of course. But it, in your imagination, how could you see this being 
sort of the the end state for Putin. Um, a Ukrainian military to victory as defined by Ukraine, or something perhaps even falling short of that? Yeah. Um, uh, for example, I, I mean, first of all, the, the Ukrainians know their enemy way better than than the sort of the, the, the so, so-called collective West does. Uh, and so, for example, the constant, you know, uh, drone attacks against the Kerch Bridge, these minor drone use, this use of, you know, minor drones in, in the, you know, against uh, targets in Moscow, uh, those are small sort of minor, minuscule military victories for, for Ukraine. But uh, uh, if you imagine, I mean, those type of attacks to go on week after week, month after month, that that in itself can have a huge psychological effect. Mm-hmm. Because after all, after all, this so-called special operation wasn't supposed to affect ordinary Russians. And now, you know, they're running when they hear the sound of a drone right. in the air. Uh, and, you know, the... Uh, uh, it's hard. It's quite hard for a Russian to tell the difference between a Russian and a Ukrainian, and so it's not very difficult for the Ukrainians to infiltrate, of course, you know, uh, uh, targets in Russia, uh, and you know the the use of these small drones. You can put you know a grenade on it. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can all, all you need to do that. Uh, all the sort of tools you need you can buy them you can find them in russia you don't even have to transport them over the border it's i mean that's the type of asymmetric warfare that the ukrainians would probably just you know enhance the use of yeah um uh, 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 because it makes military psychological sense for them to do it right um uh, and as you said uh, uh the uh what what would be the most symbolically damaging uh, loss for Putin that that would clearly be Crimea. Um, I mean, for a for Ukraine to win this war and reclaim its territory, it has to take Crimea. And if Crimea goes, I think you know chances are pretty good that everything go, else goes as well because it doesn't make sense to keep southern Ukraine or perhaps even eastern Ukraine in a situation where where Crimea is gone. Yeah. So so well, Crimea, I mean, whatever it, happens, whatever happens like, yeah. in that area, Crimea will be key. And it because seems like the, the Kerch Bridge, the Kerch Bridge will be gone <laughs> imminently, given the state or the the ability of Ukraine to to hit it with. I mean, again, naval drones. Um, uh, obviously, yeah. there was the SP operation the type, with truck. Yeah. yeah, it's the type of object that is basically impossible to protect. Right, you cannot yeah. shield it from a drone. Yeah, you know, maybe or or maybe one drone, but if you have ten drones coming. You know, against different parts of the bridge, you know, one of them, one of one of them is going to hit target. Yeah, and so yeah, they're in a difficult spot, and and they created this mess for themselves because they thought that they could get away with occupying territory and building a huge bridge on this territory. It's just like, yeah, mm. <laughs> and when you think about it, like it looks, it it sounds ridiculous, but I mean, this is exactly what they have done. They have created this mess for themselves. Well, yeah, I mean, again, it's this, this lack of imagination and, and, you know, forethought about how the population you're looking to colonize might not want to be colonized and might actually yeah. punch back. That's it. Um, I mean, That's you know, it. one of the, the, the scenarios that, that doesn't get discussed enough is even if this counteroffensive fails and even if some kind of mushy mince three agreement has to be hammered out, which I don't really see happening for two reasons. Russia and Ukraine have no desire to negotiate a peace settlement. 
um, it's still not going to stop the war. And also Ukraine will still be able to project power inside Russia. I mean, I, I don't see a guy like uh, Kirill Budanov, the head of GUR, forbearing from sending in sort of strike teams to blow stuff up, whether it's critical infrastructure or something else bigger in, in, in Russian territory. And so long as there's a state of war between these two countries, Ukraine has every right to, to take the war home to the Russians. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. Anyway, Martin, I, I know it's late where you are. Uh, and I want you to get back to what, what you were doing, if, if, if only to go to sleep, basically. <laughs> but um, oh, it's not that late. But, not but yeah, that late. thanks. Okay. Uh, yeah. But, um, uh, yeah, and we could continue speaking about, you know, potential scenarios uh, after the, you know, guns have gone silent, uh, so to speak. But uh, that could be a different podcast because it's, yes. you know, it's, it's a big topic. Okay, well, uh, you're always welcome back. Uh, whenever you like, and uh, it's great to have you on. I know it's it's been a, a, a long time coming, but uh, yeah, Sweden. Oh, appreciate it. Thank you. Sweden for has become um, a, a, an interesting subject for many Americans, also Finland now. So I'm I'm yeah. hoping to open new um, new new doors of perception, as it were, for how Americans view other parts of the world, uh, including Northern Europe and Scandinavia. Mm -hmm. Uh, so anyway, uh, thanks again, Martin. Uh, you've been listening to Foreign Office. My guest uh, this week was Martin Krag. He's the Swedish analyst of Eastern Europe and Russia, specializing in sanctions and Russian military spending. Um, we will see you next week. Cheers. Cheers.